Good, good morning. Good to be in the house with you. How's everybody doing today? Love a little winter in the air this morning. I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, I grew up in Michigan. This isn't really that cold. Yes, it is. It's cold. If, it's, if there's a three in the first digit, that's cold. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. The summer after Michael Jordan was picked by the Chicago Bulls, he returned to North Carolina where he had grown up, more specifically to the University of North Carolina, and was playing summer pickup basketball, preparing for his rookie season in the NBA. High up in the stand sat an assistant coach by the name of Roy Williams, who would go on to coach at Kansas and then also at North Carolina as the head coach. He was an assistant under Dean Smith. And between games, Jordan went and found Roy Williams up in the stands, and he sat down next to him. Roy Williams said, how you doing, Mike? Because I'm good. If you ever tell anybody what I'm about to ask you, I'll kill you. Roy said, I believe you. What's your question? He said, listen, I know I just got picked in the first round of the NBA draft, but you're somebody who will tell me the truth. What do I need to do to get better? Roy Williams, in relating this story to a biographer later in years from that, said, I knew in that moment that Michael was destined to be great. Now, Michael Jordan was supremely gifted by a loving heavenly father with, with talent, physical tools that most of us or most of you can only dream about. And Michael's career as the greatest player in NBA history, and that's true because I went to seminary, but Michael's career as the greatest player in NBA history was marked by noticeable jumps that he would take throughout his career, not from the free throw line to dunk, but jumps that he made in his skill level. Every year at the end of the season, he would identify certain weaknesses of his game, certain things that he could improve, certain things that he had to improve. And he did this year after year after year after year until finally, Father Time caught up with even Michael Jordan. As they say in sports, Father Time is undefeated. You can work on skill after skill after skill after skill, but at a certain age, you ain't going to play in the NBA anymore. One of the great things about a relationship with Christ is that we never reach that point spiritually. We never get to a point where we can't continue to grow. We can't continue to develop some spiritual skills that will help us become more like Christ, because that's the name of the game in it anyway, to become more like Christ. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. You, you follow in the footsteps of the son of the living God. Now, 
in this lifetime, we will never reach our full potential. We are always in process. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, be patient. Now say to him again, with me, because I'm in process. Some of you don't like to admit that. We are all in process. None of us has arrived. As a matter of fact, that's kind of the basis for this teaching series that we started last week called Skill Set, Getting Good at Growth. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you may be a brand new neophyte, babe in the woods Christian. You've just committed your life to Christ and man, it's just a brave new world and you're figuring it all out. There's room to grow. You may be like, I don't know, Michael Jordan, early in your career, really, really talented and you're further along than you used to be, but man, you know there are other people who have been walking this walk longer than you have. Some of us in this room, man, you, you, may, be, you may have been a follower of Christ since Moses was a baby and you're you, you've been doing it, man, not perfectly, but you've been, you've been pursuing Christ for a long time. I mean, decade after decade after decade, and there's still room to grow. There is still room to get better. That's, that's the process that we're called into when we become a Christian. The Bible calls it sanctification. Sanctification, you'll remember just as a, as a definition, just means growing more and more like Christ in every way. Growing more and more like Christ in every single way that there is. That is sanctification. Today we're gonna take up a skill that is embedded in sanctification, something that is necessary for every single person. I want you to turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face and, and love in your heart. Look at him and tell him, you need this so bad. <laughs> now, some of you may think, whoa, 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 everybody needs this? Yes, everybody needs this. Now, when you come to faith in Christ, God deposits into your life some spiritual gifts, and they're not all the same. Some people have the spiritual gift of serving. Some people have the spiritual gift of of teaching. Some people have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Now, we're all called to share Christ, but man, there's some people that, like, they, they just look at somebody and they come to know Christ. They, they just got it. That, that is a spiritual gift. Billy Graham had the spiritual gift of evangelism on, a, on an arena worldwide level. I have the spiritual gift of evangelism. It's not at the same degree that Billy Graham has it, but I've got it. But that's just one of the gifts that God has given me. There are a lot of other gifts that I don't have. For example, the gift of mercy. That, that's, that's a gift that some people really have, and they're just naturally, supernaturally empathetic towards those who are struggling. Now, I don't get to be a jerk and unmerciful because I don't have that spiritual gift. I still have to be merciful. I'm just really tired after I'm merciful. But on the other hand, I've got the spiritual gift of, of teaching and, and speaking. So that's just something that God has embedded in me. Doesn't make me better or worse. It's just different than your gifts. Some of you, if I told you you had to preach next week's sermon, you would throw up on your shoes. You don't have the gift. That's okay. You're not going to be held accountable for it. But the skill 
that we're talking about today is for everybody. Everybody needs the spiritual skill of stewardship. The spiritual skill of stewardship. Now, when we say stewardship, let me give you just a working definition of stewardship so that we're all on the same page here at the beginning. The spiritual skill of stewardship is defined like this. It is the spiritual skill of producing peace by prioritizing possessions. The spiritual skill of producing peace by prioritizing possessions. That's what stewardship is all about. And everybody needs this gift. That, that's, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much you have, how little you have, how middle you have. We all have to figure this out. We all get to deal with money. Is there anybody here who just has food show up at your house? I, if you do, I would love to hear how you pull that off. Or just clothes. Just, I mean, we all have to do something with some things that we have. And it's this idea of producing peace that I think is so, so critical. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus is in the middle of the most famous sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, this is really Jesus' first public sermon that's recorded in scripture. And in the very middle of this sermon is he's kind of it's kind of his introductory message, if you will. He makes this incredible statement. He says, where your treasure is, in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, where your stuff, your possessions are, that's, that's gonna be the clearest indication of your heart and your priorities. That's, that's Jesus making this statement. And it's, it's not even a judgment call. It's not a, it's not a command of Jesus's. It's just a statement of fact that, that your heart and my heart reveals itself most clearly in how we manage the stuff that is in our care, the, the things that we have. Now, I, I know that, that some of you are wishing that somebody had told you this was gonna be the subject this morning. That you were you're like, man, I could be at brunch beating the Presbyterians to it right now. I understand that. But can I tell you that I really, I get excited to teach this. I, I get fired up to preach this. And here's why. Because of what it does in people's lives. If you will develop, if, if I will hone the skill of stewardship, it creates within us a freedom that nothing else can touch. And I want to ask you a question. You don't have to play along if you don't want to. But I, I'm curious this morning, if you want to, you can raise your hand when I ask you this question. How many of us are walking in some degree of financial or economic concern right now? Let me just see a show of hands, if you are. If you are. Thank you so much. Y'all can keep your hands Go ahead and keep your hands up. Don't be embarrassed. Look, you're surrounded by people who love you and are feeling the same way. It's, we hear this all the time. 
recession this, recession that, election here, election there, blah, 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 blah. Can I tell you that the spiritual skill of stewardship transcends economic cycles? It transcends party and person and place and thing. It is a gift from God, but it's a skill that has to be developed. Just like Michael Jordan had to, had to put on some, some muscle so that he could take down the bad boy Detroit Pistons. You, you, gotta, you gotta put on some spiritual, some emotional muscle to steward your things well, to experience peace financially. And here's the thing that I've noticed in, in my own life, but also observationally. Nobody, say nobody. Nobody figures this out once and for all. It, it remains something that we have to continue to develop and cultivate, a skill that we have to hone if it's going to take root in our lives. This is something that is a struggle all the time. Man, I remember when I was in college. My last year in college, I was driving, in, and I was in college, my last year was 1990. I was here at the University of Texas. I had squeezed four years of education into five. And I was driving a 1979 Oldsmobile 98. Don't be jealous. Don't covet, okay? You're in church. This thing was a land yacht. The lining in the ceiling was coming down. The glue had unstuck from it. In the summertime, it would overheat because there were leaks in the radiator and I'd have to turn the heater on to pull the heat off of the engine. It, it was primo. And I remember thinking at the time, God, when I graduate college, actually I was thinking, I was thinking if I graduate college, <laughs> if you could just give me a job where I made $35,000 a year, if you could just do that, so I could buy a car newer than 11 years old with a radiator that had no leaks in it. That's all I need. Well, I graduated college, I started seminary, I was a part-time student pastor, and as a part-time student pastor, I was pulling down $750 a month pre-tax. For those of you scoring at home, that is less than $35,000 a year. <laughs> But I remember praying and realizing that $750 a month before Uncle Sam gets his cut, or it's really more of a sliver, before he gets his sliver off of that, that's, that's money that God's entrusted to me. And so even that amount of money, I'm responsible to God to steward. And so I began to cultivate the skill of stewardship even when it was a very, 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 very small amount. Over the years, God's been good. I'm up to like $775 a month now pre-tax. My point is stewardship transcends financial station in life. Stewardship means that we trust God with God's stuff. We trust God with God's stuff. 
Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Look at Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. What happens in my heart? that's, That's what determines the course of my life. Now, clearly, things happen outside of my control. I didn't create. I didn't cause. But how I respond to those things with my heart determines the role that those things play in my life, that they play in your life. Now, we like to think that we're rational beings, don't we? If we're going to make a purchase, we're going to weigh the pros and the cons. We're going to look at Amazon reviews, and we're going to make an informed, educated decision. No, you're not. You're like I am. I'm like you are. We make decisions based on our heart. Now, we do some rational thought, but not nearly as much as we'd like to think. But the closer we bring into alignment our minds and our hearts, the more we bring into alignment our minds and our hearts and the word of God, the more that we begin to see a synchronicity between those things, the more peace we feel. Our anxiety arises not from the external forces, but from the internal conflict. When there's dissonance, when there's disagreement between our head and our heart and the word of God, that's where we get anxious. That's where we get amped up. Stewardship is, it is is trusting God with, with God's stuff. Now, there is a bacteria that causes a staph infection. And the interesting thing about this bacteria is you've got it in you right now. It's always in us. But we get into trouble, and we can get into a lot of really big trouble if it makes its way into our bloodstream, if it makes its way into the open air of the enclosed system of our bodies. That's that's when we get a staph infection. As I said, everybody has stuff. You've got stuff. I've got stuff. We woke up this morning and it's cold. I wonder what sweater I'm going to wear today. What fleece am I going to put on? It's a new season. We're out of summer for at least another six weeks. (laughs) And so we, we we begin thinking about our stuff. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Where we get into trouble is when we develop a stuff infection, when our stuff begins to take over our lives, when we're no longer trusting God with God's stuff. Look at Haggai 1.6. Haggai is, how many of you read Haggai this week? Can I see a show of hands? Not many. But look at what God says through the prophet Haggai. He says, you have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. He's describing a stuff infection. Here's some symptoms of a stuff infection. Number one, financial anxiety, either chronic or acute. 
But if, if you're living in financial anxiety, that's, that's a key indicator of a stuff infection. Number two, chronic unpaid debt. Chronic unpaid, particularly credit cards, particularly. If you're making payment on a house and you're, you're hitting it, every, that's, that's different. We're talking about chronic unpaid debt. That is a symptom of a stuff infection. Number three, financial friction in marriage. Ruh-roh. Now he's gone from preaching to meddling. How many of us are married? Let me see a show of hands if you're married. Okay. How many of us in marriage have ever had some financial friction? It is terrible. It's awful when you're, you're on different pages. And, and here's part of what I think is God's genius and sense of humor. Most of the time, God calls together a spender and a saver. Isn't that true? It's true for Julie and me. I'm the spender, Julie's the saver. I'm like, man, pull the trigger. We'll figure it out. That's just my natural bent. I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's just how I'm wired up. That's okay. Julie, on the other hand, is like, oh, did you see Netflix raise their subscription prices? We're having pasta and ragu tonight. That's just her natural bent. That's who she is. And God, in his genius and sense of humor, called us together as husband and wife. Here's the genius of that. I need to learn from Julie. And over the years and through God's grace and discipline, I have learned. My natural bent is still to pull the trigger, but I don't do it willy-nilly that much. <laughs> Julie's natural bent, she's been able to learn from me. Hey, you know what? Sometimes it's okay to pull the trigger. Get, get you a double cheeseburger. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and we learn from each other. She's learned from me how to celebrate and enjoy some things. I've learned from her how to save and enjoy some things. That, that's just one example. But that marital friction, particularly if it's chronic and it lasts, it is hard to talk about money. Why? It ain't the money. What did Jesus say? It's a heart issue. And when you're on different pages financially, you're living out different priorities. And it's, it's tough to have that conversation, but it is so necessary, so worth it to get on the same page. Number four, stuff infection symptom, entitlement. Entitlement. We know I deserve a raise. I, I, I deserve to live over there. People say all the time, you know, if you drive through a neighborhood that's with houses bigger than yours, how many times, people do this all the time, like, who needs a house like that? Or they'll say something like this, yeah, but are they really happy? I don't know, that's a great house. But at either side of that coin is entitlement. Entitlement. I, I want to give you four principles, and, and then we're going to follow it up with four practices. Four principles of financial peace. The first one answers the entitlement issue. The first principle of financial peace is ownership. Ownership. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything 
in it. Say everything. Everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Everything you have is because God lets you. God entrusts it to you. In the Old Testament, the Bible says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord, that you don't say to yourself, look at this wealth that I have amassed and accumulated. Who gave you the ability to amass wealth? Who gave you the mind to work like you work? Who gave you the insight? Who gave you the circumstances? Sometimes, sometimes you just get lucky. Now, most of the time, people who work hard find themselves luckier than those who don't. But it's all God's. It's all God's. So settle the ownership issue first and foremost. If you think it's yours, you will never, ever experience the full peace of God financially. You won't. The second principle of financial peace is the principle of the tithe. The tithe. The tithe means 10%. The first 10% of whatever God entrusts to you goes back to him through the church. Look at Malachi chapter three. Malachi chapter three, I'm gonna read verses 10 through 12. God says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven you. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Try it, put me to the test. Verse 11, your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Malachi 3, 10 through 12. The references there are Genesis 14 and Matthew 23. Genesis 14 is where the tithe began with Abraham. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he goes, y'all are so legalistic, you have missed the point of the tithe. He tells them, he goes, y'all are so legalistic, you, you tithe down to the number of grains of your spices. That's, that's how legalistic, you, like you measure all your spices and then you take 10% out perfectly, but you have forgotten the greater issues of the law of Moses. You've forgotten mercy. You've forgotten kindness. You've forgotten love. And Jesus says, you should have done the first part about the tithing, yes, but you really ought to be doing these also. It's both and. The principle of the tithe. Can I just tell you, if you've never practiced this principle, I know for some of you, you're, I mean, like 10%, you're like, 10%? I'm just gonna tell you, I have never met the person, ever, who practiced the principle of the tithe and regretted it. I've never met that person. I've never met that person who resented it. Like, no, no, no. The principle of the tithe works because God blessed it. God ordains it. The third principle is savings. Savings. Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. 
Now, I feel a little attacked by that verse, but that's okay. Just because your natural bent is like your pastor's doesn't mean you have to actually do that. Save, 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 save. And then number four is the principle of freedom. Freedom. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus is in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. And it's in this Sermon on the Mount that he says the following. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom, the purposes, the authority of God in your life. And his righteousness, his brand of right living, right relationship with other people. And then everything else will take care of itself. I promise you. That's what Jesus is saying here. So what are the practices? Number one, paving the path to financial peace. This is going to be a list of four things also. It'll be on the screen here. Steward wisely. Steward wisely. To steward something means that you're taking care of somebody else's stuff. So if I'm, if I'm casual or lackadaisical with money, it's not my money I'm being casual and lackadaisical with, it's God's. Steward wisely. Proverbs 27 says, know the condition of your flocks. For wealth does not extend to all generations. Know what's going on. Be wise as you steward. Number two, tithe faithfully. Tithe faithfully. Listen, I do understand. If when you, when you give the first 10% to your church, man, that, that's... That's a chunk. That's a noticeable amount out of your monthly income. But I also know this. God is faithful. As I said, we have been practicing stewardship. We've been practicing the tithe as a family since before we got married. We have never seen God fail his promise of Malachi chapter 3. Not one time. Not one single time. So take that faith step. Just, just try it. Man, what a great time of year to be thinking about that. Going into the holidays, getting ready for the new year. Say, you know what, we're, we're gonna start this. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna do what the Bible says. We're gonna test God. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna put this principle to the test. Tithe faith fully. Number three, save diligently. Man, put money away. Put money away. The one thing that I can guarantee you financially is a rainy day. It, it will happen. Your AC will go out probably in August. If you save for it, you're fine. Proverbs 21, in the houses of the rich are choice stores but the fool spends everything that he has. And then number four, 
Live freely. Live freely. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, listen, just put aside some money every week that you have decided to give, but remember this principle. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. He's saying if you, if you plant stingy, then you're going to harvest stingy. But on the other hand, if you plant abundantly, if you plant with an expectation of God's goodness, then that is what you will harvest. It is a spiritual, immutable law. And this is the same passage of Scripture where the Bible says, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And when you give a gift that you've thought about, that you've, you've considered the other person, there's something in it. It's, it's more fun to give it than it is to be the person who receives it. God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in is literally the word hilarious. Hilarious. That's the word. I'm not making that up. I would not lie to you. Hilarious. So when you give cheerfully, you're writing a check or maybe you're doing it online, you're like, this is hilarious. <laughs> Ooh, that's hilarious. But that's the heart of God. Given what you know about God, that he is good, that he is love, given that, do you think God gives anything to us reluctantly or, or with, with bitterness? All right. Here. That's not who God is. That's not how he operates. God gives cheerfully. God gives abundantly. Jesus said, you know, those of you who are parents, if your son or your daughter asks for a piece of bread, you don't give them a stone. If they ask you for a fish, you don't give them a snake or a scorpion. Now, if those of you who are earthly parents and you, have, you sin, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? How much more purely and perfectly does he know how to give? You see, the whole conversation is a heart issue. The whole thing. Man, it's fascinating as, as the pastor to teach and to preach. I love getting to teach this. I, I used to be a little bit reticent. I was like, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to, you know. And I, this, is, this is sensitive stuff. I get it. But now I love it because it frees people up. People who, who do what the word says, man, they, they experience the blessings of God. God says, I will bless you in ways that you won't have room enough to contain it. You know what that means? That there will be blessings overflowing out of your life into the lives of other people. We are blessed to be a blessing. It's not about just getting the blessing. It's about blessing other people. That's, that's what God wants to do in you and through you, in me and through me. Man, that, that when, you, when you get to step back and go, God, what do, you, what do you want to do through me? What do you want to do with the overflow? You talk about prayers that are fun, prayers that are freeing and liberating, but it's a skill. It's a skill that has to be cultivated, a skill that we have to hone deliberately and intentionally and practically practically. 
It's not enough to just go, man, I ought to do that. I ought to do that. That's, that's great that you recognize that. But then what do you do about it? What do I do about it? Because ultimately, it ain't about the money. Well, let me say this. It ain't about the money, but it's about the money. It's not just the money, but it's what the money represents. Again, because of Jesus' observation, where my treasure is, man, that's where my heart is. That's just the facts. Let's say that you and I have lunch together. And it's, I don't know, December 22nd. And over lunch, I say, you know what? I just want you to know that as a friend, a fellow follower of Christ with you, I'm really grateful for you. And and I've gotten you a present this year. Whoa. Is he doing this for everybody in the church? (laughs) I bet not. And I'm, (laughs) I'm special. And I gave you a present, and, and let's, say, let's say that this Christmas present cost $100, okay? But then on Christmas Day, when I'm at home, and I give Julie her Christmas present, I said, Julie, man, it's been, a, been an incredible year, and there's nobody on the planet I love more than you. And I I want you to know how much I love you. And I got you this blender. (laughs) The pastor would be in trouble. Why? Because those two gifts contradict my heart. They, they, They don't speak accurately about priority, about placement. I'll just tell you, Julie gets my best on a human level. I I may do something for, for other people, but I'm not doing anything more than what I do for Julie. Are you kidding me? She kisses too good. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a financial issue. It's not an income issue. It's not an outgo issue. It's a heart issue. That's why Jesus spoke to it. Jesus spoke more about our relationship to money than he did any other subject in his teachings that are recorded in the New Testament because he understands the role it plays and can play in our hearts. Matthew 6, 31. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first. Seek first is about priority. It's about priority. It's about priority. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And as you bow your head, I know that that today's subject matter is sensitive. But I want to ask you 
to follow in the footsteps, the, the intellectual footsteps of Jesus. And follow in his footsteps like this. If this is a heart issue, as he says it is, where is my heart? Because the whole reason Jesus came to earth was for our hearts. It was for our hearts and our minds for all of our lives to live in relationship with him. He said in John 17, three, this is salvation that they might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent that they might know you. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that. To use a conversation as mundane as money to point us toward the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. If you're here today and you've never done that, then we invite you to to respond to the prompting of God and to pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of surrender to the only one who could never take advantage of your surrender. To pray, just silently right where you are, something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And I confess my sin to you in order to accept and to take hold of your grace, your forgiveness. And I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the dead for me. And so, Jesus, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward. It won't be perfect, but it will be real. And it'll be forever because of you and your grace. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment, if that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment as a statement of that commitment that you just made. And know as a church, we honor that and celebrate it with you. In just a moment, we'll kind of explain how we would love to help with the moments that follow. But right now, just know we're excited for you. We're excited with you. And our family tradition is as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.